electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. On day 108 of the coronavirus crisis, the Dow falls nearly 450 points as economic data paints a stark picture. All as talk to reopen the country grows and the government's small business rescue plan is about to run out of money. The virus takes hold of the economy. Retail sales down 8.7%, and that is the lowest read ever. Investors hunker down in the face of grim economic news. Dow session low, down about 600 points. As Americans grapple with their new realities. I don't really know what, what the future looks like. You've got to be prudent and plan for the worst. But as the pressure builds to reopen the country, the question remains, are we ready? The more testing, the more open the economy. But... There's not enough national capacity to do this. The CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Good to have you with us yet again tonight. So with our top story tonight, how should the country reopen? With us right now is the former Democratic presidential candidate, John Delaney, also the former Minnesota governor, Tim Pawlenty. Gentlemen, it's good to have you with us for our top story this evening. Governor, I begin with you. We heard the president tonight. He's going to make an announcement, he says, tomorrow. We don't have enough testing yet. We're not even close, yet we are moving towards a reopening. Are we, Governor, making a mistake? Well, of course, uh, Scott, this is like the proverbial balancing test of physical health versus economic health. And it's like trying to catch a falling knife. Too early or too little can cause a lot of problems. But what we're beginning to see at a regional and state level is the elements of guidelines or a roadmap that would include expanded testing, more contact tracing, isolating those infected, protecting the most at risk, ensuring the healthcare system isn't overwhelmed, distancing within the workplace, and then being ready to reinstate if things don't go well. It's too early now, I think, um, but we've got to at least get ready for a situation where those elements can be in place. In my view, that's probably in the May. Congressman, are we ready? Well, I think the governor's right. This is a regional decision, first of all, because obviously the virus is playing out very differently across this country. And I think that uh, we can't open today, but there are parts of the country that can probably begin to reopen in a very, un, what I would describe as kind of a very gentle glide path starting in May, where you could see office workers starting to go back into the office because you can social distance there, and you could see some small shops and things that don't particularly get crowded reopening. But we have to get used to masks and gloves because I think we're gonna, that's going to be a very common thing in the early phases of reopening. Governor, talk us through this. How how do you try and get a state 
up and running again, while at the same time knowing that you're taking a big risk, the worst thing you want to have happen is to reopen and then have to shut down again. That would be even more devastating for the economy. Yeah, that's exactly right. And of course, there is going to be some risk. We shouldn't sugarcoat it. No matter whether you try to reopen in increments or try to reopen sooner or later, our leaders should look us in the eye and say, we're going to try this, but let's all understand there is some risk and things could go, you know, in a negative direction that would require us to, to rein it back in. But I want to underscore something uh, uh, Congressman Delaney said, which is you can't do any of this until you have quick, easily accessible, ubiquitous testing available, including potentially at the workplace. And we're not there yet. Well, Governor, we're not going to be there by the time the president wants to reopen either. So how do we handle that? We're not going to be ready for mass testing to test every single person who walks into an office building on May 1st. But even even now, Scott, you could look around and say the standard isn't just essential. It's either essential or things that can be done safely. So, for example, it's not one size fits all in Minnesota. There's a lot more cases in urban areas than remote rural counties. So there's some geographic differentiation you could do. And then secondly, things like outdoor work. I mean, if you're a landscaper, if you're you're dealing with something, dealing with the boating industry, you know, golf courses aren't the most important thing, but done correctly, you know, they could be open. And I could go down the list of things that could be done incrementally. You don't need it at all a one big bang opening. It could be done in a measured way. Congressman, there are those who say, look, we have to get the economy reopened. That's what we do. We have to do it sooner rather than later. And the reward is worth the risk. Do you agree? Well, listen, we've become very bad at trade-offs in in our country. We talk about everything in absolute terms. I think that you've got to be prudent. You've got to look at the science. I think it's incredibly important to make sure the health care system in whatever area you start reopening is in a condition to handle Uh, the increase in cases that are likely to happen. Because, listen, as the governor said, we are likely to have some spike when we start reopening. We all hope those spikes are gentle. We all are going to think about the things we need to do to make sure they're gentle. But you can't take that risk unless you have a health care system that has the capacity. So, for example, if you look at San Francisco's health care system and the number of people on ventilators and the excess ventilators they have, and you compare it to New York, for example, two, two large cities, there's a clear difference in the capacity of the systems to handle an uptick if you reopen. So what that means is San Francisco, for example, can you know, put its toe in the water on reopening because there, if there is a spike in cases, the healthcare system can handle it. Whereas in New York right now, that's much harder to do. So you have to look at some of the things that will mitigate the risk of an inevitable spike uh, in cases when you reopen. So that's also an important component of this. And if you have that, I think you can start doing things. Yeah. Governor, how closely do do other governors need to work with business leaders and CEOs on this issue? And what if they come back and say, sir, we're just not ready. We're afraid that if we say show up for work, our employees won't. Yeah, very, very uh, important point, Scott. And I I think governors across the country are clearly working with CEOs. The Business Roundtable, by the way, which is, the you know, of course, the umbrella group for the largest companies in the country, came out with a guideline or a roadmap back to reopening. But one thing I think your question suggests is this. There's, it's one thing for a politician to say we're back open. 
It's another thing for people to actually believe it and do it. And to some extent, this is going to self-regulate because if people, somebody says we're back open, I think there's a lot of people who aren't going to be very eager to go around more than a couple people at a pretty safe distance. And so no matter what the politicians say, there's going to be some self-regulation around just how people react to that. Gentlemen, we appreciate your time very much tonight. And also, just one thing to add, people who are vulnerable, this is not going to reopen for them for a long time until there's treatment or ultimately a vaccine. Congressman Delaney, Governor Polenti, we appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Let's bring in now Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor with us nightly for our our visit. Doctor, it's good to see you yet again. You tweeted earlier today in, in terms of going back to work, quote, we're not going to be fully prepared. There is going to be risk. How much risk should we be willing to face? Well, it's inevitable that there's going to be risk, and there's a possibility that you can see a resurgence in cases once we start going back to work. I think different parts of this nation are going to start slowly introducing activity on different timetables, and I think the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, is likely to be slower. I think you're likely to see activity in this region um, start up sometime late in April, maybe even into uh, late in May, maybe even into June, while other parts of the country contemplate it sooner, probably early May, mid-May. Um, because different parts of the nation face different levels of risk. But in, in regions where there were large outbreaks and epidemic spread, you look at New York, you look at Miami, New Orleans, Chicago, Detroit, um, I think those cities are likely to go back later. I think you're likely to see activity start up probably sometime late May, maybe even into June. So they're likely to continue the social distancing much later than other parts of the country. Do you believe nationally that we're in a strong position As the president said this evening, there was a Washington Post story today that said a CDC and FEMA draft memo memo uh, warned of, quote, significant risk of resurgence of the virus with the reopening and a, quote, large rebound curve uh, if mitigation efforts are relaxed too quickly. Is that a big concern of yours as well? It's absolutely a big concern, but I think you're likely to see a very staged approach to any reintroduction of activity. So when you think of what the reopening is, what the reopening is going to be is a staged reintroduction of activity that's now curtailed. And I think what we need to do is introduce activity slowly. Businesses aren't going to bring back all their employees at once. And then you take pauses to assess whether or not you're seeing an increase in new cases as a result of reducing the social distancing. I think one of the concerns, or a couple of the concerns, is we don't have all the tools in place that we want to have in order to um, you know, reduce the risk as much as we can. So the tools that you would want is very aggressive surveillance with diagnostic screening. We're not going to have that. And you also want the ability to do good track and trace. What that means is when you have cases that you identify, track down people that might have been in contact with that individual, get them tested, monitor them to make sure they don't come down with infection, and also isolate, ask people who have the infection to isolate so they can't continue to spread it. We're not going to have all the resources to do that in May. We're not going to have it in June, though, either. So, you know, we might have it by the fall. So inevitably, at some point this summer, we're going to start reintroducing activity before we have everything we want, before we have the optimal system. In terms of how things may look on the quote-unquote other side of things, you also tweeted about that. You say activity is permanently altered until we get a vaccine. A lot of people are not going to have confidence to get into crowded spaces. You said, I'm going to be more cautious. I'm not going to travel unnecessarily. So this is going to take a long time to get back to any semblance of normal, doctor. 
I think that's right. I think it's going to be a new normal. I think that there's a lot of things that we're going to do differently. You know, we're, and it might actually increase productivity. I think you're going to see wider use of teleconferencing and Zoom calls, Zoom board meetings. I think some of that's going to be here to stay. People are going to be more circumspect about traveling. People are going to be more circumspect about going into crowded spaces purely for entertainment. I think people are going to look to go out to dinner and, and go to entertainment closer to home. Um, because you're going to trust your local community more than you might trust a community that you're not familiar with, and you'll know if something's spreading more likely in your local community than going into a big city. So I think you're going to see life change a little bit. Um, in some ways, you know, it won't, we won't be the worst for it, but in other ways, certain things just aren't going to come back the same way that they were prior to this. I mean, okay. I think you're likely to see sports played for a long time without, uh, without fans in the stadiums. That's a good segue to my next question. The Los Angeles mayor tonight, Eric Garcetti, was said to tell high-level staffers that in-person sporting events and concerts could be on ice until 2021. you agree with that? I think it's a possibility. I mean, different cities are going to have to make different decisions. But, um, you know, if a city doesn't have the capacity to do good screening and doesn't have the capacity to know whether or not the, the virus is spreading within the region, monitor people as they go into a stadium, that's, that's going to be more circumspect, bringing back people into a, a big stadium when you don't know what's going on in the background of your city. I mean, optimally, we would have a surveillance system in this country or a, a medical um, awareness system, if you will, that we would know if there's outbreaks within a major city. You'd be testing enough people on a routine basis that if there were hundreds of cases within a city, you would detect it. And so if we can have that kind of system in place, I think then we can get back to more of the activity that we're accustomed to and that we want to get back to. But if we're not aware where this is spreading until there are hundreds or maybe thousands of cases within a city, that's, bigger, that's a bigger risk to try to bring, bring groups back together in that kind of a setting. I think the system I'm describing we will probably have by the fall. We're not going to have it by May or June. I'm hoping as we go into the fall and the winter when the risk increases that we can start seeing a renewed epidemic of this virus. We start to have those kinds of tools in place. Scholars at Harvard today said we may have some degree of social distancing for the next two years. Are we ready for that? Look, I think people are going to be uh, more cautious in their actions. A lot of this, a lot of the um, reconditioned behavior, if you will, when practiced on a wide scale, is actually going to reduce the risk of the next epidemic. People just taking simple precautions around hygiene, personal hygiene, cleaning of shared spaces, avoiding crowds, wearing masks in public. I think masks are going to be more commonly used in our society. There's a lot of things that we're going to do differently, and when practiced on a wide basis, are going to reduce the risk that this virus spreads. It's also going to reduce the the intensity of the flu season that we're likely to have this year. Um, and that's another matter. We should probably be very aggressive about getting people flu vaccines because if we can reduce the incidence of flu going into the winter, uh, then it's going to be easier to detect outbreaks of coronavirus because what's going to be a challenge going into the winter is when coronavirus is circulating alongside flu. Remember, Scott, we're not going to get to zero cases. We're going to have cases of coronavirus every single day until we get to a vaccine and then probably after we get a vaccine. So this isn't going away. It's something that's going to circulate at low levels, and we just have to mitigate the risk as much as possible and try to reintroduce as much of our normal lives as we can. That means many people in jurisdictions are going to be looking to you for your expertise for a long period of time, which is a, a good thing that will have you uh, on board thinking about all, all this. And lastly, on a personal question, on that note, there was a report that said you looked to go back to the administration on a temporary basis, but that the paperwork got bogged down in the vice president's office. What can you tell us about that tonight, Dr. Gottlieb? Well, I can't speak to the paperwork. I've, I've been in discussions with the administration about assisting them in various ways, and I continue to work closely with them. I continue to have friends in the White House that I talk to on a regular basis and try to provide 
counsel to. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about uh, with them privately is the stuff that I'm publishing publicly, so it's out there for public view. But uh, I'm going to continue to try to help them in any way I can. Are you actively looking to go back even in a temporary role to help out in, the, in getting back to business, if you will? Well, I'm, right now I'm, I'm advising them in a more formal way as a member of the reopen uh, task force that they announced yesterday. But a lot of what I'm doing is just providing counsel um, related to the things I'm writing. I'm going to continue to do that. I think that's the role I'm likely to play going forward. Um, at least for the foreseeable future. And I hope I can be helpful to them, as well as the governors. I'm working with a number of governors, um, also trying to provide as much counsel as I can. Hope you'll still have some time for us and our viewers. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, thank you once again for joining us this evening. The other big story tonight, the government's small business backstop, the Paycheck Protection Program, could run out of money as soon as tonight. Kate Rogers talking to small businesses about that impact Kayla Tausche in Washington following the details of that developing story. And Kayla, we begin with you tonight. Scott, the way that the money is being handed out, by midnight tonight, all $350 billion that has been allocated to this small business loan program is going to be spoken for. This comes as multiple uh, weeks of businesses queuing up to try to get these uh, much-needed funds at a time where many of these businesses are having to shut their doors completely and lay off their workers. Industry groups from the banking world have been asking the administration to allow applications to continue even after after the funds have been fully uh, allocated or spoken for, it's unclear whether that will happen at this moment. Now, as for future funds, last week, an effort to expand the program by $250 billion failed after Democrats wanted to add more provisions onto the funding to assure that these funds were going to community banks and to also expand some of the SBA's disaster relief programs. As of earlier today, talks to expand the program this week were at a standstill, but aides were hoping hopeful that the urgency of these funds running out would change that. Absent a deal between the Treasury Secretary and Democrats in both the Senate and the House, aides were pessimistic that something could be done, but they noted that a lot of times, Scott, these things happen at the 11th hour, and both the Senate and the House are expected to hold pro forma or very brief sessions before the week is out. Scott? Kayla, the clock is ticking. Thank you for your report tonight. Now to uh, Megan Rogers. Uh, okay. <laughs> now to Kate Rogers, excuse me, on the small businesses who need this money. Kate. Hi, Scott. Well, well, we are hearing a few success stories here and there. One thing is for sure, millions more small business owners are going to need some form of aid. Remember, there are some 30 million small businesses across this country, and just 1.4 million loans have now accounted for the vast majority of this program's funding. Businesses that we've spoken to are scared that the first-come, first-served fund will be running out soon. There are other forms of aid available to businesses that are running into issues as well, including economic injury disaster loans of up to two $2 million. Business owners have to apply for those directly with the SBA. Now, advance grants of up to $10,000 were also promised to businesses within just days of applying, but funding amounts have changed and companies we've spoken to have not yet gotten their disaster grants. A senior administration official tells us funds are being dispersed, adding that nearly 4 million businesses have applied for disaster funding for a total of $383 billion, adding that Congress has allocated just $17 billion for this program. Some business owners like Jason Duff, who's CEO of Small Nation, a company that focuses on revitalizing small cities and towns, are still waiting on disaster aid. Although good news, Duff did just have his PPP loan funded. 
It has been the feeling that we're you know, building an airplane as it's flying. Um, the process has been uh, messy, but you know, I'm thankful that these monies are starting to come through uh, for businesses like mine and others, um, but we still have a lot of work to do. One major question does remain. How much capital has actually gotten to Main Street from banks? It's a question we continue to ask every day. The SBA and Treasury have yet to formally comment on that request, but we did hear from the Consumer Bankers Association CEO today saying that that number is likely just in the tens of billions of dollars. Remember, $315 billion has been spoken for so far in this program. Scott, back over to you. Kate Rogers, thank you very much. My apologies to you this evening. We're just getting started on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Let's make a deal. Hospitals banding together to trade with each other as shortages of critical gear grows. Plus, doctors on the move, following the peaks and fighting outbreaks. Hear from one on the front lines. Before the break, images from around the country on the 108th day of this global pandemic. the horizon for financial markets. At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Time now for the latest headlines. The number of cases of coronavirus worldwide now topping two million. Germany will begin reopening some stores next week, but keep social distancing guidelines in effect until at least May 3rd. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo ordering all people to wear face coverings now in public. Hospitals struggling to get all the supplies they need to deal with this pandemic are now trading gear with each other. Elon Moy has that story for us tonight. Elon. Well, Scott, hospitals are essentially creating a new barter system where they can trade or share those critically needed supplies. It's called The Exchange, and it launched today. It's a partnership between Stanford Health, Premier, one of the country's largest medical purchasers, and a tech company called Resilink. Already, a 1,000 hospitals have signed up, and that number is expected to double by the end of the month. Here's how it works. A hospital might have extra supplies. In this case, Stanford Healthcare is offering up 200 testing swabs for COVID-19, while another hospital might need that equipment and be willing to trade its own supplies. Here, UCSF Health has 750 of those hard-to-find N95 masks. So, it's a match. 
You know, the founders say this could be instrumental in providing stability for the healthcare system, especially as the current hot zones start to perhaps peak, but new ones flare up across the country. Hospitals are counting on those inventory levels that need to be replenished. So it actually makes the exchange project even more essential because at any time in the next few months, you could see a key source of supply suddenly get uh, impacted. Now, the White House is coordinating a similar effort around ventilators. Roughly 4,000 could be available for states to share. But, Scott, clearly hospitals are not waiting on the federal government to take action. Back to you. Elon, thank you so much. That's Elon Moy reporting for us tonight. Well, while some hospitals are bartering, some doctors and nurses are taking themselves to hotspots. Dr. Ajit Rai traveled from California to New York City, where he's been helping in ICUs for the past two and a half weeks. He's with us tonight. Doctor, it's good to have you with us. Yours is a truly remarkable story. So you were practicing in California. You left and just came to New York to help? Uh, that's correct. Uh, I'm a full-time anesthesiologist in Central California, and um, uh, I began hearing about the catastrophes occurring in New York City hospitals from my colleagues who are currently working here, and uh, I felt compelled to contribute um, and do my part. And you did it all as volunteer work, didn't even tell your parents, by the way, that you were coming here. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, I realized that uh, chasing this virus, um, you know, it, it's not the most popular quarantine idea. But, you know, I remember when 9-11 happened and the Twin Towers were struck, although it was a very devastating time for our nation, I remember being so inspired about um, the stories of those firefighters who ran into those burning buildings and to you know help save those people and that bravery is something that I never forgot and you know I do recognize that as an anesthesiologist we are a very high risk subgroup of the physician population but I simultaneously believe that you know I've been studying and training my entire life for this moment and I feel a moral imperative to provide care for as many people as possible. Um, so, yeah, I didn't tell my parents, and uh, <laughs> that was a fun conversation. Yeah, I'm sure it was. So you've been here for two and a half weeks now. I'm wondering if you can tell us from what you found when you arrived until now, how have things changed in your own eyes? Well, you know, what I first found surprising is that operating rooms where routine knee surgery was occurring uh, has have become converted to intensive care units. So where we would previously be operating on, a patient now has three ICU beds. So our hospitals have completely transformed. We're using operating room ventilators uh, to pe put people on life support. Um, I would say that the circumstances seem to be getting a little bit better, but we're still very resource deplete and spread very thin from not only a um, ventilator perspective, you know, PPE perspective, but also a personnel perspective. And how long do you anticipate that you'll stay here before you go back to California? Uh, I would say it's open-ended. Right now, my obligation is to New York City, and I want to see this through. Um, you know, I, you know, several months ago, I began working for Doctors Without Borders, and, you know, I was living in the Middle East, and that experience providing care in a resource-deplete area, I I think mentally prepared me for um, this current crisis where I'm now also helping deliver care in a setting that is 
very resource poor and personally hazardous. But, um, you know, I, I feel an obligation to, to see this through um, as best I can. Incredible work you're doing. Uh, we salute you for it. We wish you well. That of your colleagues, too. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Ajit Rai joining us tonight with a remarkable story. Here's what's coming up on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. How one company is using mobile data to determine what impact social distancing is having on business and the economy. And after a strong run, stocks get halted in their tracks by some dire economic numbers. So what now for investors? This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. March was a terrible month for retail. Actually, it was the worst month ever. A reality check for investors. Minus 78.2 is our April read on Empire Manufacturing in and around Gotham. And obviously that is not a good number. As some of the worst numbers on record begin to pile up and the economic damage from the virus begins to become apparent. Where do stocks go from here? We're doing uh, social distancing on the aircraft. As demand actually rebounds to a point that that becomes harder to do, we'll have to figure out customer demand. And business grapples with what things will look like on the other side. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Good to have you back with us. Let's give you a quick look at the futures right now. After a tough day on Wall Street, we'd have a negative open Right now, all across the board, S&P, Dow and uh, Nasdaq. Stocks falling in today's session. The Dow losing 445 points, but closing well off the lows. The S&P 500 down more than 2%. Energy, the worst performing group as oil falls to an 18-year low. Let's bring in Jenny Harrington. She's the CEO and portfolio manager with Gilman Hill Asset Management, along with Joe Terranova. He's the senior managing director with Virtus Investment Partners, halftime report trader as well. Jenny, I turn to you first. So how do we reconcile these terrible economic numbers that continue to come in with the fact that the market is where it is? Sure. So I think, as we discussed last week, I think the thing is that these numbers aren't necessarily surprising. They're shocking, they're ugly, they're horrible, but they're not necessarily surprising. And so on the earnings calls, I believe that we investors and we analysts are looking a little bit through the numbers and trying to assess what the different management teams are saying and trying to look forward. 
we've, I think we've written off 2020. I think we've said we know that earnings are going to be awful. We know that revenues are going to be terrible. We know economic data is going to be hideous. We know this. Let's do everything we can to start looking forward to 2021. We know the 2021 picture is blurry, but with each passing day and with each bit of information we're getting, that picture will become a little bit more clear. And the clearer it gets, the more we can start to do, the more we can start to build and recover and understand which companies are going to survive, which might actually thrive, and which will fail. So at least we're getting information. And that, to me, is a big deal this week. Easier said than done, though, Joe, to be able to look past all of this horrible data. And we're going to get another jobless claims report tomorrow, which is going to be just as ugly, if not uglier, than the last one. And then we're going to have to decide what it means for the market. Yeah. Well, Scott, I think what the market is deciding is as it moves higher and it gets north of 2,800, it has to compete in terms of investment capital with the credit markets. Above 2,800, the S&P 500, as a collective body of 500 stocks, begins to look overvalued. And you have to really narrow down to a select maybe 25 or 50 stocks that'll be able to compete in that risk-reward balance with the credit market. So I think that's what's happening right now. And as the economic news is being distributed and uh, negatively, you're seeing a pullback overall for the S&P 500. But I would urge investors to focus on 25 to 50 quality stocks that are going to be able, from a risk-reward standpoint, to endure that negative economic news. Jenny, you, like many of our viewers, are a dividend hunter. So how are you thinking about these now going forward? Do you expect a number of companies to cut their dividends? I do. I think that there will be all the companies that are obvious, right? The ones who need to take government funding. So the travel and leisure, Boeing's, airlines, those guys are all going to need to cut the dividends. Then I think there will be companies who cut their dividends where the dividend was just a cherry on top. It was just an extra bonus to the, to the investors. I think there are significant, a significant number of companies, though, where the dividend is key to shareholder return. And these companies know that if they cut that dividend, that's all their, that's all their shareholders are getting and what they're relying on. And they know that, they, that that's the way they return to the shareholders. And I think that that cohort of companies, I think that they're going to stick with their dividends. Um, and I think they have the wherewithal to do that. There are mature companies out there with high, strong free cash flows that will be able to maintain. A lot of them are the pharma companies like Pfizer and AbbVie, some of the telecom companies like AT&T and Verizon. Um, there is no reason that companies like those should need to cut their dividends through this. Joe, if there's one area... But I'll say this. I think the, I think the number of solid... Sorry. Nope. Go ahead. Sorry. Finish. Go ahead. Finish. I was just going to say, I think the number of companies with really solid dividends that you can rely on is definitely shrinking. So my universe of investable companies is getting actively smaller. Joe, if there's one area for our viewers to look at tonight, what would you say it is? Uh, Look at the stocks that have already made V recovery, whether it be Amazon, whether it be Walmart, whether it be Abbott Labs, whether it be a name like Eli Lilly. These are stocks that have already traced out the V recovery. These are the stocks that moving forward will be able to endure negative economic news. These are the stocks that will be able to compete with the investment dollars right now that are gravitating towards high yield and investment grade corporate bonds. All right. We'll see both of you on the halftime report sometime soon. Thank you very much, Jenny Harrington and Joe Terranova. If you have any questions, by the way, about managing your money and your health during this pandemic, 
Certified financial planner and medical doctor Carolyn McClanahan from our CNBC Financial Advisor Council will be taking questions via Facebook with our own Bertha Coombs. That is tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Eastern during our Markets in Turmoil special. You can begin submitting your questions now at facebook.cnbc.com. There is much more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Next tonight, using social distancing data as a crystal ball to see what business might be like on the other side. Before the break, images from around the world on the 108th day of the coronavirus crisis. Retail wreck indeed today as sales plummeted in March down 8.7 percent, their biggest drop ever. Courtney Reagan joining us now with more on the consumer court. You know, the consumer was the strongest contributor to U.S. economic growth before the coronavirus outbreak, but it and the associated retail industry may very well be what keeps us from really having a recovery take off. Remember, 70 percent of our gross domestic product comes from consumer spending, $3.9 trillion, and the National Retail Federation estimates $1.3 trillion will be lost over the first three months of the pandemic. Today, as you mentioned, the worst retail sales result ever, and surveys show that consumers expect to have a reluctance to spend on anything that's not a household essential for some time to come. Plus, will social distancing measures keep us away from one another once those stores do reopen? Look, retail is also the largest private sector employer in this country. 32 million are directly employed by retailers. If you add in the ancillary businesses, that's 52 million Americans, one in four. Hundreds of thousands of retail employees are currently furloughed. Thousands more corporate employees are working with reduced salaries right now. And the National Retail Federation also estimates we could see over 6 million retail jobs lost in the first three months of this pandemic, 12 million jobs lost after the course of a year. And look, stores are closed, but those expenses don't stop. Retailers are doing what they can. They've borrowed money, billions of dollars worth. They've suspended dividends and share buybacks, cut back on capital expenses. But think about already distressed retailers like JCPenney, which today decided not to make a $12 million interest payment that was due. These names could be pushed further into the brink of bankruptcy and potentially faster. And if it happens all at once, the ripple effects for landlords, for the vendors, it could be pretty dire. Scott? Courtney, thank you. That's Courtney Reagan for us reporting tonight. So once the economy does reopen, how will businesses know what consumers want? Let's bring in Gladys Kong now. She is the CEO of Uber Media. It's the company that tracks mobile location for companies across the retail and media space. Gladys, good to have you with us tonight. How will your company help businesses figure out 
what consumers want on the other side of this crisis. Scott, thank you for having me. Um, the data we provide is to look at consumer behavior. Obviously, is a very much evolving situation. Um, a lot has changed since COVID started. And uh, the good news is we have settled in a new normal, so we'll stay in this new normal. As things start opening up, we have no, nowhere to go but up. And so how we are helping our client is to help them look at consumer behavior, how that has changed, and how coming out of this can they best deal with the new situation. So we will look at this as different region will probably have a different recovery period and a different policy going forward. And so we brief our clients weekly with data that helps them not only understand the current impact of COVID, but also help them help guide them through the recovery. How, Gladys, do you think consumer behavior will change on the other side? Um, like you mentioned earlier in the show, I think some activities are going to be permanently altered, but some will not be. But for instance, I think there will be fewer trips made. People will make maybe perhaps more purposeful trips to go out. And so I think for foot traffic-wise, there'll be maybe less lucky-lose, but maybe more purposeful uh, consumers buying what they need. And they will probably shop as fewer places. They will go to the few, fewer destinations but get what they need. And I think there will be other impacts like travel. Uh, you probably feel safer travel locally in, within your community, within your state, where you know the policy of uh, social distancing. So for us in Southern California, maybe we'll choose to go to Northern California as a, as a family trip. So I think there's a lot of uh, different behavior that will change. And the retailers and uh, businesses that are more adaptable and will be looking at data to make decisions will probably be more successful in this currently evolving situation. I wonder whether the types of products we're going to want to buy on the other side will change as well. Yeah, I, I think uh, based on uh, consumer behavior, we can probably uh, make a better decision on that as well. Uh, for, for instance, right, there are businesses when it opens, there will be probably a lot of pent-up demand like nail salon, hair salon, right, and uh, hair product. There are a lot of things that uh, I think will inform uh, the decision on what you should stock and how, where, when you should uh, stock up your inventory as well because grocery buying behavior changes when we have social distancing in place, too. used to be weekends are the peak shopping hours, but now um, shoppers go Thursday through Saturday, more so than Sunday. So a lot of behavior changes, and that's why I think measuring human movement using our data is important because you can't inform your future decision with historical data anymore. We, we're in an unprecedented time. You touched on this for a bit earlier, but expand on it regionally. Things are going to look differently. There are different parts of the country that are going to attempt to get back to normal before others. Yes. So this is where it helps, too. Some, country, some uh, parts of the country will open up maybe sooner than others. And based on behavior of that, uh, those regions, you can inform your decision when your country, county or your state start opening up as well. So looking at data, not just in the region that affects your business, but looking broadly also help inform decision because right now any data is better data than your historical ones because um, things are just different now. Gladys, thank you for your time tonight. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much. Uh, that's Gladys Kong tonight of the CEO of Uber Media. Still to come, one business owner who went from riding high one day to shut down the next in his own words.
Tonight, the story of a skincare company that went from its busiest weekend ever to zero sales almost overnight. Here's Heyday CEO Adam Ross tonight in his own words. I think right now we're in the eye of the storm and I, I'm pretty bearish on, I think, when we're going to open. I really hope I'm wrong. So I'm the co-founder and CEO of Heyday. We are a, a personalized skincare company. But we have 11 shops across the country. We're around 400 team members at the company. We, in short order, made an announcement on that Thursday night of March 12th to actually close the stores um, as that close of business on Friday the 13th. As a leader, one of the most difficult things you can do is be in a position where you're telling your team that, um, that you're laying them off. But the messaging was, hey, this isn't us letting you go. This is a temporary pause. We need to do what we can so we can welcome you back and keep the family together when it comes to reopening. I don't really know what, what the future looks like. I, I think while, we, while you've got your moments where you want to hope for the best, I think in this situation you've got, to, you've got to be prudent and plan for the worst. You know, the biggest unknown is are we going to be closed for two months, three months, four months, six months. Now that was Adam Ross, the CEO of Heyday, in his own words tonight. Let's get the headlines now this evening. The number of cases worldwide of the coronavirus now topping two million tonight. The mayor of Los Angeles saying he does not expect large gatherings like concerts and sporting events in his city until 2021. And the WHO warning today that drinking alcohol could increase the risk of catching the coronavirus and make it worse if you do get it. And one final check of futures tonight after a down day on Wall Street. Looks like we would have a negative open at this moment. Of course, volume is light. Trading is thin. The S&P would open lower by 20 points. The Dow Jones Industrial Average by 175. And the Nasdaq would be lower by nearly 48 points. You can go to CNBC.com for up-to-the-minute information all night long on the markets and the virus. We're back with you at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning with Worldwide Exchange. I'll see you again at 7 p.m. Eastern time for Markets in Turmoil. We'll have the latest headlines and the numbers for you. For all of us here at CNBC this evening, I'm Scott Wapner. Stay well. Shark Tank is next. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.